You know, this Christmas story is only told in two of the four Gospels directly. We have four of those Gospels. Say them with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I didn't hear you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke give us the details concerning the birth of Jesus. Mark begins when Jesus is 30 years of age. It's as though he doesn't want to waste any time. Not that telling the birth of Jesus is a waste of time. But he is in such a hurry to tell people that they need to give their lives to Christ that he begins with Jesus' baptism when he's 30 years of age. John tells the Christmas story in a very unique way. It's in that prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And in those verses, John says things like, in the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D. Talking about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That's the Christmas story. But if you really want all the details, it's Matthew and Luke. And then they don't give us all the details. They don't have to. They're not concerned with people 2,000 years down the road answering every single question that we might have. It's a perspective. It's really two unique perspectives. You look at Matthew in his genealogy, and you look at his view of things, and he tells the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. On the other hand, you turn to Luke, especially in Luke 2, 1 to 20, which is the, the ultimate story of Christmas, but the chapter before that, and all the verses leading up to Luke 2, 1 to 20, tell the story of Christmas from Mary's perspective. But from both we find that it's a journey. That's the door that we're talking about today. It's a pilgrimage. It's a trip. And I want to ask you to spend a few minutes with me this morning talking about some of the familiar or maybe unfamiliar stops along the way in this story of the birth of Jesus. For it could very well be that in the actual chronology of what happened, to Mary and Joseph and all those surrounding the birth of the baby Jesus, that those stops that they made and what those stops meant along their journey can parallel what we face in our world today. So the journey of the door, the journey of life, it begins with a Judean hillside, a Judean hill country village. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 and 40. We heard it when the hammers lit the lamp near the door of journey. But I want to ask you to look at those two verses one more time. It says, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now at first glance you might say, Okay. You didn't read far enough, Stephen. You didn't go into it exactly what Mary was doing. We could do that, but time means we've got to move on this journey. But I want to ask you to remember something about these two brief, seemingly just transitional verses in the narrative. It says, at this time. What was this time? 
You look at the chronology, you look at Luke chapter 1 especially, and you will find that, you remember, Zacharias got word about the birth of a child, a birth that he didn't expect, nor would Elizabeth, because they were far beyond the typical age of childbearing. But yet, she was expecting a child. And it says that Mary got a visit from the angel Gabriel. And it's that word from Gabriel that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit without physical sexual intercourse, that she would be the virgin who would give birth to the child, the Messiah. At that time when Mary heard, when Elizabeth happened to be about five to six months on her journey, Mary visited them. It says she stayed three months. She stayed until the birth of John the Baptist, it would seem. But the point of it all, think about it. Mary comes from the village of Nazareth. She goes to a small village that's unnamed on the hillside of Judea. You remember Zacharias was a priest, not one of the the big-time priest who lived in the temple complex itself, but he was a, a priest who lived in the outlying area. You remember the whole reason he got that visit from the angel about the birth of a son was it was his rotation, it was his time to appear in Jerusalem and offer a, a sacrifice, offer incense in the temple. And it was there that the angel spoke to Zacharias. And then it was there that he was told he would be mute for nine months. He would have to sit in silence and wait for the birth and the arrival of this child. So it's during that time that Mary makes a journey. If Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in a village, let's say surrounding Jerusalem, let's say on the north side of the city. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. But let's say they lived somewhere in an area. That's what it means when it says the Judean hillside. Then Mary had quite a journey to make. Most people would say it was about 80 miles. She did it by the context, at least, on her own. A young, expectant woman making a journey that would have been, could have been, should have been dangerous, ill-advised. But she went and she found her relative. They were cousins. We don't know if they were first, second, third, or whatever cousins, but from the same family line, she went to visit Elizabeth. And she stayed three months from the sixth month of Elizabeth's time until the birth of that son named John. What did they do? What did they accomplish on this strange journey? I would simply like to state it that she was where she needed to be, to be where you need to be. There was something to be said for The connection between a woman who was probably nervous because she was way beyond the typical time when you would bear a child. And on the other hand, a very young cousin who was found, found herself expecting long before she would have ever thought she would give birth to a child. They were both where they needed to be so that they could what? So that they could encourage one another, no doubt so that they could visit and support one another. Why else would Mary keep house for three long months in her cousin's house? But what other, what other reasons would Mary have for making that journey that seems so out of place, that seems so beside 
the point. For encouragement, for accountability, who knows? But I think the Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that part of it was they came together to celebrate. This is that passage where Mary gets what's called the Magnificat. It's that, it's that song of praise that Mary gives concerning the promise of the child she would bear. It's been put to music. Bach put it to where kettle drums are beating throughout. It's an amazing passage. It's an amazing song. And it's appearing to be just one biblical reference after the next. Mary just shouted in music the praise and adoration for the fact that God would use her to fulfill his ultimate purpose. I have an idea, this is reading into the text, but I have an idea that probably part of the reason Mary went to spend those three months with her cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias. You remember Zacharias was mute. He'd been mute for six months by the time Mary got there for the last three months of this journey. And maybe it's just the contrast between a man who demanded proof from God and a young girl who said, I am your servant. Do with me whatever you will. That's a journey, a stop along the way. Now, I don't know what it means for you specifically. I have a hard time understanding what it means for me at times. But to be where we need to be at any given moment is a prayer we need to pray. There's another stop along the way here. It's the village of Bethlehem. Now, it's from Matthew's perspective in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, where in his telling the Christmas story, Matthew is a master of just telling what happened and then looking back at the Old Testament and bringing out these passages that apply. And one of those was the very birthplace of the Messiah. In telling that story of Christmas in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew goes back and he pulls a passage out of the prophecy from Micah that was hundreds of years, centuries before the time of Jesus. And there he quotes from the fifth chapter of Micah, the second verse where it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem. Now, it was the prophesied place for the birth of the king. It held a lot of history. It was David's birthplace. It was the city of David, as it was known. It's six miles south of Jerusalem. The area of Bethlehem is still there today. It's a city today. But in this day and time, it was, of course, much smaller, less inhabited. But it was Matthew's telling us of the story on the next stop for Mary and Joseph was that they had to make their way from Nazareth, where they lived, to Bethlehem to register for a census, to take care of their legal obligation. But through the centuries, it seems, most people had forgotten about Bethlehem. Most people had looked toward a much larger city. It's only six miles north. It's where the temple is. It's the city of all cities. It's blessed Jerusalem. 
It's Mount Zion. It was always a picture of what heaven would be like. But in the midst of that great city, in the midst of the capital of that area called Judah, we're reminded through Scripture that the next stop along the journey for Mary and Joseph wasn't Jerusalem, but it was Bethlehem. I draw some natural lessons from that. Sometimes we ignore the obvious right things. It was no secret that Bethlehem would be the place where the child was born. It was no secret that when that star came and caught the the eyes of those magi, those wise men, however many there were, we say there were three, but that's simply because of the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew doesn't tell us how many there were, but there was an entourage. What? They were the only ones who really understood the obvious right thing about the birth of the Messiah, whereas everyone else had gone looking somewhere else. They had been mesmerized by the city that was so much larger, so much grander. And yet the scripture says, going all the way back to Micah, eight, nine hundred years before the time of Jesus, it was Micah who trumpeted the thought that Bethlehem would be the place where the Messiah would be born. But it also says something about the cost of Christmas. You know, a lot of people overlook one very, very dismal part of this story, of this whole event. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's when Herod the Great, as he's known, asked the Magi to let him know when they found this Messiah, this new king, so that he could come and worship him. But his desire was not to worship, but to destroy this pretender as he saw him. And so when the wise men came to Bethlehem, the Bible says that they went home by another way. That God in a dream gave them a new way to get home where they didn't have to go back and report to Herod. And when Herod heard about that, Herod's rage got the best of him. And he came and ordered all the baby boys of Bethlehem to be slaughtered. Now, that didn't make the history books. It's not mentioned much anywhere else outside of the Bible. But you've got to keep in mind Herod's personality. Herod the Great is the one who killed his wife because he was jealous of her. He had an entire family that he wiped out because he was paranoid. History tells us that he wrote in his will that when he died, he wanted all the leading citizens of the city of Jericho to be murdered so that the people would mourn at the time of his death. Thankfully, that didn't happen. He had a sister who called it off after Herod the Great's death. But for Herod to order the slaughter of infants, infant boys in Bethlehem, should come as no surprise to anyone who studied his life. How many are we talking about? The book of Ezra has a roll call of when the Jews returned back home after the exile. It says that 123 men returned to Bethlehem. That would mean that just general figures would have put Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth to maybe be a thousand people, maybe 20 to 30 little boys were affected. But it's all about the cost of Christmas, see. 
This, this stop on the journey, this little spot on the map, oh, little town of Bethlehem, we sing. And we should. But we've got to also remember that this little town of Bethlehem suffered a tragedy at the hands of an evil king. You know, this journey that God has his people on, this journey that goes from a Judean hillside where Mary stays for three months with her cousin, encouraging one another, and a reminder of what it means to be faithful, and then ending up in Bethlehem, where everyone really, if they looked at it, expected this event to happen, but it didn't happen the way anyone thought. And then for Herod to commit such an evil act. Next stop is somewhere in Egypt. It says in Matthew 2.13, Now when they had gone, and they means the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Interesting. Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, living there for quite some time, no doubt. Time enough for the Magi to find them. And time enough for Joseph to be worn in a dream to flee to Egypt. Interesting turn of events. You see, from the very birth of Jesus, he's a refugee. That's a loaded word in our day and time now, isn't it? To think that of all the attitudes that we have and of all the political rhetoric that's being shouted this time of year concerning refugees. If we look at the Scripture, we find that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, from the very beginning of his life, his whole family were refugees. Where did they go? They fled to Egypt. What does that mean? Egypt had a large population of Jews, no doubt. But it was a place where Mary and Joseph and the child could be safe. And that's why they went there. As best we can tell, they stayed about a year because at the death of Herod the Great, which we can date in history, coinciding with when Mary and Joseph fled to go to Egypt, they stayed there long enough for everything to subside. But it's a passage that Matthew quotes that strikes me. It is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It's not on the screen, but it says this. It says, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Unusual. A passage that Matthew just kind of goes back there and lifts out of a story centuries before the time of Jesus, just like Micah's prophecy. Out of Egypt did I call my son. Well, What's going on here, Matthew? Why choose this? Because that passage clearly talks about when Hosea is going through a tough time in his life. He was a prophet that lived centuries before Jesus was born. That God called upon him and said, Hosea, remember, it was out of Egypt where I called my people. I called my son. That was a reminder that God had a journey. God wanted to spare his nation. God had plans for his people. And it came from Egypt when it's a direct reference to the Exodus. It's a direct reference to the children of Israel being spared and fleeing and under the leadership of Moses and that whole story. But now it's not talking about the Exodus. It's talking about 
a little baby who fled with his mom and dad. And they resided in Egypt for about a year. And they were refugees. They were cared for. They were in hiding. As far as Joseph and Mary knew, they, they didn't know how long they would have to be there. And I call it a desert education. That's truly what this stop along the journey is all about. It's having to learn the hard lessons. And it's as though Matthew is looking back at Hosea in 11 and saying, for anyone who will read it and anyone who understands, we know that the children of Israel did not complete what God wanted them to do. And yet now in this baby who fled with his family as refugees to Egypt, out of Egypt did I call my son. This is a, a new day. This is a new journey. This is a new exodus. It's just another stop along the way. But then the last one is Nazareth. It's Nazareth. Matthew two nineteen. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in, uh, by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And he came and he lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill which was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Nazareth. Okay, we know about that place. Luke 2 tells us that Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem for that census. We know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. The Bible here tells us that Joseph and Mary went back to Nazareth in that northern part. And you remember, Herod had all those sons that he slaughtered and his wife that he killed, but he had another family as well. And in his final will, he gave all this land that he was in charge of to three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. They're all called Herods in the Bible. It's confusing. Herod Archelaus was ruling in Judea, and he had a reputation just like his dad. He was ruthless, violent. And that's why it says that Joseph was afraid to go back to the area of Bethlehem in Judea because Archelaus was no better than his father. But Antipas, Antipas did not have the reputation of being violent, at least at this point in his life. And so God directed Joseph to return back to Nazareth and it was there that Jesus grew up in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But it's what Matthew says about this stop on the journey. He says... He came to Nazareth to fulfill the prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, don't even try. Take my word for it. You're not going to find that as a verse anywhere in the Old Testament. You're just not going to find it. But this is what you will find. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, There will rise up out of the stump of God's people a branch, a shoot, a righteous branch that will spring forth. That word for branch in Hebrew is Nazar, Nazareth. You see what Matthew is doing and saying that it's being fulfilled in the prophets is he's going all the way back to an obscure passage in Isaiah, but one that says what? That talks about 
the Messiah being that righteous branch. It's another stop along the journey. It's another reminder that there's no place like home, perhaps. Jesus spent all of his growing up years that we know very little about in that area called Nazareth. And it was there that he grew. And it was there that he launched out into a ministry when he was 30 years of age that lasted until he was 33 plus. You see, all those stops on this journey remind us that there are places where God leads us. Now, see, when I look at my idea of a journey today, I think of this. This is my iPhone, but it has an app here that's a GPS. You can punch in an address. And for me, a journey involves this GPS because it gives me, well, unless it's wrong, it gives me every stop along the way. Every turn. Marcy and I went to New York a couple weeks ago to look at Christmas decorations. And walking down in Manhattan, this is the lifesaver. Because you punch in an address. You know, all those 53rd and 8th and whatever they are, they get all confusing. This tells you exactly where to go, where to turn. tells you how long it's going to take you to get there. This is my idea of taking a journey. You don't go off blind anymore. You've got your friendly GPS. And what else goes along with journeys that we go on today? This gives me a guaranteed arrival time. This gives me a known destination. But that's the problem. You see, my idea of a journey is not God's. Because when God sends his people, when God sends you and me on a journey, just go back to these stops along the way for Mary and Joseph. What does he give us? He gives us deserts. He gives us red seas. He gives us suffering. And ultimately, he gives us a cross. Now, you see back here, everybody knows what this is. This is a manger. It's a feeding trough. It's probably the most recognized symbol of Christmas ever. I mean, this manger is on Christmas cards. This manger is what some churches do, and they ask uh, people to kneel before a, a manger and pray at Christmas time. This manger is mentioned three times in Luke 2 1 to 20. Verses 7, verses 12, and verse 18, if I remember right. Why is it mentioned that many times? It's because it was given as a sign to the shepherds. See, we focus on the manger and we forget. The manger's not there just for the manger's sake. The manger is mentioned because the only ones who knew what was going on that night were the shepherds. They were the only ones. And so Luke doesn't mention it once, twice, but three times. He wants to make sure that the shepherds know the baby they're looking for is the one that will be in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Because they were the only ones who knew. And they needed this manger as a reminder and as a sign 
to know what to do, to know what message to bring. See, we spend all this time focusing right here, and we think of the baby lying in the manger, and yet we should. But we forget that the very purpose for Luke mentioning it three times is because the only ones who knew about this amazing event, besides Mary and Joseph, were the shepherds. And that was repeated once, twice, three times, so that when the shepherds got there, they could corroborate and encourage Mary and Joseph that God indeed was God. But see... This manger should not mean the same thing for us other than the fact that it points to something greater. It points to a cross. Now, they didn't have that understanding then, but we do. They didn't know all the ins and outs of the prophecies and how everything was going to turn out. We do. And so we focus at Christmas on a manger, not because this is the end all, this is the beginning, and it should be a sign to those of us of faith, to a cross. The ultimate stop on the journey, you might say. Where we don't find death, but we find a victorious Lamb of God. Lots of journeys, lots of twists and turns. But if we can take a cue from a little travel itinerary that's mentioned right here in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we'll know we're on the right path. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here, to come before you, to acknowledge who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I pray that we would put our focus on the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We offer an invitation as we conclude this hour. I know it looks a little busy down here, but there's room. Be ministers in this area as you come down these aisles here. The only one that would be a problem is the main one. But it could well be that there are those who would make spiritual decisions today. Maybe, maybe it's the first time you've ever understood that the real point of all this Christmas story is not just a baby being born, but it's what that baby did. And it's that cross that really makes the difference. Maybe there would be someone in this room and you would come forward to profess your faith, to ask Jesus the Christ to come into your life, to forgive your sin, to save you. We call it getting saved or crossing the line of faith or making things right with God. Put it anyway, becoming a Christian. There are any number of ways to describe it, but it's still the choice. It's the prayer that we must make in response to what God has done for us. So we invite you to make that choice. Maybe you're here today and what you need is a, a church to call your own, a place where you can grow, where you can serve. We offer our church to you. How do you join a church like ours? You come forward. And it may be it's simply a matter of the kind of journey you want to be on. If you're looking for every step to be laid out for you, if you're looking for everything to be nice and cozy, if you're looking for the smoothest road possible, then you're not going to find it in God's will. But you will find salvation, hope, a glorious future in the midst of those bumps and dead ends that are seemingly dead ends on this journey of life. 
So what would that mean for you? How would you adjust your life to the kind of journey God has you on right now? That's why we're here. I ask you to stand with me. We sing. We wait for you here. As God leads, respond.